Uh, just a couple of things before we jump into the material for this morning. Again, you can find these slides on the website, forerunnersofthefaith.com. If you just click on lessons, this is lesson three. And uh, throughout the PowerPoint, there will be some things that are underlined that corresponds to blanks that are in the workbook. So with that as sort of the few housekeeping items, I'm excited to jump into this material this morning. Uh, Last week, we were talking about the book of Acts, and then we kind of launched out a little bit beyond the book of Acts. We were in the first century of the history of the church You'll remember that the book of Acts, really Acts 1-7, functions as an outline of the book of Acts, Acts 1-7 and 8, where Jesus said to his apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that, in fact, is how the book of Acts unfolds. Chapters 1-7 to are the apostolic ministry to Jerusalem and Judea, Acts 8, the gospel goes to Samaria, and then Acts 9 all the way to 28 is the gospel going to the ends of the known world, primarily through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And all of church history really has been a continuation of that, the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And we even talked last week about the fact that here in Southern California, we represent the ends of the earth and how grateful we are for the fulfillment in church history of the expansion of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We talked quite a bit last week about Paul's missionary journeys. We went kind of quickly over those because I know Pastor Brian had already gone through Paul's missionary journeys with you. And the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome in Acts 28, And we believe that Luke wrote that around the year 62 or so in the first century. And then after that, Paul was probably released, likely went to Spain and did some other things before a fire in Rome broke out in the year AD 64. And Nero, the emperor at the time, blamed the Christians. And as a result, there was a massive persecution against the church That persecution provides the backdrop for the writing of 1st and 2nd Peter because Peter was likely in Rome when that happened. According to early church tradition, he was then arrested and crucified, actually crucified upside down. In fact, the tradition says that his wife was also arrested and executed on the same day as Peter was. And then shortly after that, Paul was also arrested and put into a dungeon, which gives us the historical background for 2 Timothy. And then, as a Roman citizen, he was not crucified, but was beheaded for his faith in Christ. Sometime around then, as well, the author of Hebrews, and I told you last week, I think the author of Hebrews actually was Paul, but there are those who disagree with that. In any case, the author of Hebrews wrote his epistle against backdrop of that same persecution. There were Jewish believers, or at least professing believers, who were thinking about going back to Judaism because the persecution of Nero was not aimed at Judaism. It was only aimed at Christianity. And so there was this temptation to think, I'll just go back to Judaism and avoid the persecution. And the author of Hebrews said, no, 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 you can't do that. You've started the race of the Christian life. It's time to finish that race and to fix your eyes on Christ. Then around the year 70 AD, because of a revolt in Judea called the First Jewish-Roman War, 
There was an emperor from Rome. This is after Nero's death. Nero died in 68. Uh, the emperor after him was a guy named Vespasian, and his son Titus Vespasian was dispatched from Rome with an army, and they came and quelled the revolt in Judea and actually destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. Big, significant event in the first century. Around that time, you had, probably a little bit before that, you had the apostles leaving from Jerusalem and going to various places throughout the Roman world. There's actually very good evidence that the apostle Thomas eventually made it to India and took the gospel with him to India. But the apostle John actually went up to the area of Asia Minor and ministered in and around which is modern-day Turkey, in and around the church at Ephesus and some of the other churches that were there. And he would have ministered there for probably the last three decades of his life, which would be from about 70 to about 100. He wrote several letters for 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote his gospel to supplement the synoptic gospels. And then in the mid-90s was exiled to Patmos, where he received a revelation from Christ, the book of Revelation, which of course is the last book of the New Testament. And when the Apostle John died in the year 100, the apostolic age came to an end. Where we are at this morning is we're going to pick up right there at the end of the apostolic age, and we're actually going to push off from New Testament church history into the rest of church history. And what I'm really excited about is getting to introduce you all to some people that perhaps you've never heard about before, but people who knew the apostles and were actually discipled by the apostles. This is the first generation of Christian leaders outside of the apostolic era. And like I said on the first week that I was here, my understanding of church history when I didn't know much about church history, was that after the age of the apostles, the church kind of fell off a doctrinal cliff and became Roman Catholic almost immediately. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that that's just a very inaccurate and inadequate understanding of church history. And what I want to show you this morning is the faithfulness of those men who were leaders in the church in the generation that came immediately after the apostles and what we're going to see over the subsequent weeks when I come back is we'll see that faithfulness continue into the subsequent centuries of church history. A verse that I think is so in, uh, helpful in this regard is 2 Timothy 2.2, which is a verse that I know you're familiar with. Paul says to Timothy, again, Paul writing at the end of his life, knowing he's about to be executed and to go home to be with Jesus, he says to Timothy, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that verse we use a lot, especially around here. And I work at the seminary. I get to teach at the seminary along with Pastor Brian. And, and we think of this verse a lot in terms of pastoral training. Or here at Grace Church, we think of this verse a lot in terms of discipleship. And it is true, there's four generations of Christian leaders listed in this verse. Paul, then Timothy, then faithful men, and then others also. And this verse certainly does present us with a paradigm for generational church discipleship and leadership 
that you pass the baton to the next generation. But what if I told you that when we think about this verse, there's also a way to think about it in terms of its actual fulfillment in church history, that there were faithful men that Timothy knew and that Paul knew who they actually entrusted this work to, who did go out and teach others also, and that we actually know who some of those faithful men are. That's what I love about this verse in connection to what we're talking about this morning is we actually get the opportunity to meet some of these faithful men who knew Paul, were discipled by Paul, knew Timothy, and who were co-laborers in ministry in just that next generation, right at the end of the first century, bridging the gap into the early second century of the history of the church. And of course, you all know this, but centuries are always named for the last for the last year in the century. So the first century ends with 100, the second century ends with 200. So when we talk about the second century, we're talking about 101 all the way to 200. Okay. Who were the faithful men who came after the apostles? Well, we, we know these individuals under the title of apostolic, apostolic. Let me just explain that real quickly because sometimes, especially for Protestants, it makes us a little nervous to call anybody a father in church history because it sounds very Roman Catholic. But I would suggest that that's not the way to think about it. Uh, these men were not Roman Catholics. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church as a distinct entity doesn't actually exist until the great schism of 1050. When we think about these individuals, the apostolic fathers, they're not the dads of the apostles, right? This isn't Zebedee or you know Peter Barjona, Jonah, the, the father of Peter. No, these are the early Christian leaders who came after the apostles. So apostolic fathers, the disciples of the apostles. And I would think of fathers in the sense of founding fathers. Like when we think of George Washington and Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, we think of the the founding fathers of the United States. In that sense, these men were the early leaders of the church who came after the apostles. And they were the spiritual children of the apostles. And so the name sometimes is a little confusing. But when we think about the church fathers more broadly, we're talking about those early Christian leaders. Now, specifically, the apostolic fathers as a, as a group, it refers to those early Christian leaders who wrote things and their writings have survived all the way to the present. The list here, there's only eight people listed. There's five names and then the anonymous authors of three documents. You might be tempted to think, wait a second. After the apostles, there were only eight leaders in the, in the Christian church of the early second century? No, not at all. There were hundreds and hundreds of leaders and, of course, thousands and thousands of Christians but not all of their writings in God's providence have survived. So when we talk about the early church fathers, we're talking about those who were leaders who wrote things and their writings have survived. And that includes this list. Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Barnabas of Alexandria, not the biblical Barnabas, Papias of Hierapolis, 
Polycarp of Smyrna, and then the anonymous authors of the Didache, the epistle to Diognetus. Now, I know all of you are familiar with all of those names. You probably do your devotions out of... No, you shouldn't. You should not do your devotions out of this because the Bible is our authority, not these guys. But what I think you'll be encouraged about is that as you get to meet these individuals, you'll find that the things that you and I believe about the gospel, about the person and work of Jesus Christ, about the authority of Scripture about what it means to live out a faithful Christian life, these men share the same convictions that you and I share. And it's not that we share those convictions because the apostolic fathers had those convictions. It's that we both share those convictions because we're looking at a common standard, and that common standard is the word of God. And so I want you to be encouraged this morning. I don't expect you to remember. I know Jade is into quizzes. But uh, I don't expect anybody, you know, two weeks from now or whenever the next pop quiz is. And Jade, you like totally put that on the visitors. That was, that was intense, man. Um, and Olivia, welcome. But I, I, I don't know that you'll remember. This is where I was going with that. I don't know that you'll remember the names of any of these individuals, right? Polycarp, Papias, Ignatius. Clement. Like, who's going to remember that? I don't know. But that's not really the point. The point is I want you to see the common testimony of the truths that we see in Scripture about who Jesus is, what he accomplished, and what it means to live for him, and be encouraged that their testimony is, it reverberates with the common convictions that we also share because we see those same things in the Word of God. Okay, so let's talk about these different individuals. Clement of Rome, we'll start with him. So if we were Roman Catholic and we're not Roman Catholic, let me say that very clearly for the uh, recording and also for all of you in the room, we are not Roman Catholic. But if we were Roman Catholic, just for the sake of argument, we would consider Clement of Rome to be the fourth pope. That's because according to Roman Catholicism, Peter is the first pope. And after Peter, you have Linus and then Cletus. And then you have fourth Clement because the pastor of the church in Rome at the end of the first century. So he was pastoring in the Roman church in the 90s, uh, not the Clinton era, the 90s of the first century. So Clement of Rome or Clement the first, he's sometimes called, is the fourth pastor of the church of Rome. If you have of chronology of everything starting with Peter. Now, just as a footnote on that, Peter was not the first pastor in Rome. We know that because Peter was not in Rome when Paul wrote Romans because Paul doesn't mention Romans when he lists all of the leaders of the church of Rome at the end of the book of Romans. And you can look at the end of the book of Romans sometime and see everybody that was there and Cephas or Peter, he's not there. So Peter was not the first pastor of the church, that, but as we talked about on week one, Peter did not see himself as the rock on which the church was built. He did not consider himself to be the first pope. So everything about the Roman Catholic assumption on which papal succession or Petrine succession is built is flawed. But it is interesting to think about the fact that they regard Clement of Rome to be the fourth pope. And the reason that's interesting is because... Clement of Rome wrote one letter that has survived. It's a letter called 
Clement's epistle to the Corinthians. Sometimes it's called First Clement because there's another sermon called Second Clement that's sometimes attributed to him, though most people don't think he actually preached it. So he's a surviving letter, First Clement, and in that letter, he has one of the clearest statements of justification by faith alone of anyone in church history. I looked, and I find it a bit ironic, that the fourth pope was so clearly Protestant. And I remember one time I had the opportunity to be on a Q&A panel out at Ligonier with uh, R.C. Sproul was on the panel, and there were some other guys on the panel, and I, I talked a little bit about Clement being the fourth pope, supposedly, and how he was a Protestant. And R.C. Sproul, I said, you know, the fourth pope was a Protestant, and R.C. Sproul goes, so was the first pope, um, which... <laughs> I thought it was great. That was a reference to Peter. Peter also did not believe that we are saved in part through our works, but he also believed that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So let me show this to you. This is from, um, this is from chapter 32 in his epistle to the Corinthians. And he wrote this epistle because there was infighting that was taking place at the church in Corinth. In fact, if you read... 1 Corinthians, you know that the very first issue that Paul addressed, in fact, Pastor Brian's been preaching through 1 Corinthians here in Steadfast, the very first issue that Paul addressed was schism and division within the church. He wrote that around the year 55 AD, and here we are 40 years later, around 95, Clement's writing another letter to the Corinthians saying, you guys need to knock it off, you keep fighting with each other, please stop doing that. Or if you keep doing it, please stop calling yourselves Christians. That's essentially the thesis of Clement's epistle to the Corinthians. And by the way, you can read all these, you can read translations, or if you want to learn Greek, you can learn Greek. But you can read translations of all of these documents online for free. They're all in the public domain. There's numerous translations that exist. One thing I love about teaching church history is all of the source material is freely available online. So if you want to get into the Apostolic Fathers, the Church Fathers, if you want a book version I recommend is by Michaels. It's called the Apostolic Fathers, but you can also just do a Google search and find numerous translations. So back to Sola Fide, here's Clement, chapter 32, paragraph 4. He says this, and It's really interesting. Clement is following the argument of Paul in Paul's letter to the Romans. If you read 1 Clement, Clement's epistle to the Corinthians, you clearly see that Clement was a disciple of Paul. He was familiar with Paul's letter to the Romans. In fact, in Philippians 4.3, it's possible that the Clement mentioned there is this same Clement. But here's what he says. He says, and so we Christians having been called through God's in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith, whereby the Almighty God justifies all men that have been from the beginning to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So he doesn't use the word alone, but instead he actually gives us five categories by which we are not justified. You're not justified on the basis of your good works, 
on the basis of your holiness, on the basis of your piety, on the basis of your effort. Even the good things you do from a sanctified heart, they don't justify you. You're justified through faith. And when he says in the same way that God has justified all men, in the context, he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, because he's following Paul's argument from Romans 4 and 5. Now, you'll remember in Romans 4 and 5 that when Paul gets done talking about the fact that we're justified by faith apart from works, he anticipates the question, well, doesn't that mean that I'm justified apart from works and live however I want? I have a license to sin because my salvation is not based on what I do. And you'll remember in Romans 6 verse 1, Shall we sin that grace may abound, right? Paul asks that question, and the answer is, may it never be. And I think it's really interesting, because I'm going to show you the very next paragraph here from Clement's epistle to the Corinthians. Right after he gets done emphasizing justification by faith apart from works, he says this. He says, what then must we do, brethren? So he's going to ask a question. Must we idly abstain from doing good and forsake love? May the master never allow this to befall us in the least, but let us hasten with urgency and zeal to accomplish every good work. So I love that. Clement has an understanding of the gospel that we are justified by grace through faith apart from ourselves in any way, and yet those who have been justified have also been regenerated, which means we've been given a new heart, and therefore we are going to evidence the transformation of new life in a worthy walk. I mean, this this is great. This is the gospel according to Jesus all the way back in the 90s of the first century. And I just love the fact that it comes from the fourth pope. This is a, obviously, artistic rendering from the Middle Ages of Clint's martyr. I appreciate the use of forced perspective in this particular um, illustration. The the bigger figures are supposed to be closer. It's it's not really a three-dimensional approach to art. But first of all, Clement didn't dress like a medieval pope. That's all anachronistic. But what this does depict is the fact that, according to tradition, Clement was taken on a ship out into the Mediterranean Sea and he was drowned as a witness to Jesus Christ. And one of the things that you're going to see with pretty much all of these early church fathers, much like the apostles, is they were witnesses to Christ even unto death. And you'll remember from last time, I noted the fact that the English word witness comes from the Greek word martus, and we get our English word martyr from that same Greek word. What is a martyr? A martyr is someone who is a witness to Jesus Christ, even to the point of death. Well, that's Clement, Clement of Rome. Let's talk a little bit about Ignatius, Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, There is another Ignatius in church history mentioned. His name is Ignatius of Loyola. He was much, much later and is associated with a certain sect of the Roman Catholic system, the the Jesuits in particular. That's not this guy. (laughs) This guy was a disciple of the apostle uh, Paul and Peter. In fact, according to some tradition, it's possible 
that he actually installed as the pastor of the church there in Antioch by Peter himself. So you remember Antioch, Acts chapter 11, it was from, Antioch was the first Gentile church in the Roman Empire. It was a Jew-Gentile church, First Baptist Church of Antioch. And it was from Antioch that Barnabas and Paul left on their missionary journeys. That's this Antioch. Third largest city in the Roman Empire, and Ignatius was pastor there. And he was arrested for being a Christian, but instead of being martyred in Antioch, he was actually taken from Antioch, and he was taken to Rome. And in Rome, there is some debate about this, but in Rome, he was martyred either in Maximus or right next door in the Colosseum. There's no doubt about the fact that he was martyred in Rome. The debate is whether he was martyred in the Colosseum or next door in the Circus Maximus. And he was martyred by being attacked by wild beasts, which you can get a sense of that even from the drawing that's there. And here you get a, just a, a map of the Mediterranean world where Antioch is located. You know where Antioch is, but as we get to some of the other places this morning, this map will become more helpful. Um, Ignatius is known not only for his martyrdom, but he's known for kind of two developments in church history. One is something, something, the other is simply just a recognition of something. The development is that in the early church at that time, well, if we go back into the New Testament, we recognize that there are really two offices that are listed in the New Testament in terms of service in the church or leadership in the church. There is the office of deacon slash deaconess, and then there is the office of elder. And there are three words in the New Testament that are used as synonyms for the word elder. <coughs> Excuse me. The first is presbyteros, which means elder. And then there's poimen, which means shepherd or pastor. And then there's episkopos, which means overseer, or sometimes it's translated as bishop. So presbyteros, elder, pastor, and overseer. And in the New Testament, all three of those terms are interchangeable and synonymous. If you were to read Titus 1 or 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for eldership, you would see that those terms are used interchangeably. But by the time we get to the early 2nd century, Ignatius is concerned about the fact that if we have too many, well, we'll just use the vernacular, senior pastors or too many lead pastors that there is the potential for division and conflict within the congregation. So we need to have one senior pastor and then a group of elders around that one senior pastor. And Ignatius articulates that by distinguishing or differentiating between an episcopos, he would have used the, the term bishop, and a presbyteros, an elder. So Ignatius introduces into church history something called monopiscopacy, which is a great word to say five times fast. Mono meaning one, episcopacy meaning bishop, one bishop. He taught that there can only be one episcopos in any church, even though there can be many. Okay, so what, what Ignatius essentially did was he said, every congregation should have only one senior pastor, and then they can have a lot of elders around that one senior pastor. 
Now, for Ignatius, this isn't so much a biblical thing. It was a practical thing to avoid division and conflict within a congregation. But what happens over time is you have systems that get built on this model that develop hierarchies of leadership that are completely unbiblical, where you have bishops and then archbishops and then cardinals and then popes. And all of a sudden you have this very unbiblical or extra biblical structure of leadership. And the root of it all goes back to the distinction between The other thing that uh, Ignatius affirmed that I wanted to point out to you was he affirmed the fact that the early Christians met and worshiped on Sunday. Now, we already see that in the New Testament because in the book of Acts, it talks about how they met on the first day of the week. And in the book of Revelation, John himself receives this revelation on what is called the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week. But we see that affirmed in Ignatius and here in his letter to the Magnesians, which I just love saying Magnesians. It's just so therapeutic. But in his letter to the Magnesians, this is in chapter 9, he says that Christians regulate their calendar by the Lord's day, the day on which our life rose by his power. And if to this mystery we have faith and because of it submit to sufferings, to prove ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, our only teacher, how then can we possibly live apart from him? So I thought you would be encouraged to know that Christians have been gathering on the first day of the week ever since the very beginning. And why is that? It's because this day, the first day of the week, is the day on which the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And therefore the church gathers on the first day of the week in celebration of our Lord's resurrection. Okay, and here you have an artist's rendition of Ignatius being killed by wild beasts. Again, possibly in the Colosseum. Um, Most of the Christians who were killed were not killed in the Colosseum. Most of them were killed in the Circus Maximus, which is actually much bigger than the Colosseum and was an area near the Colosseum. But Ignatius may have been killed in the Colosseum. If you ever get to Rome and see the Colosseum, you'll note the fact that they'll make that point in the tour that you take. All right, I want to talk about Polycarp for a little bit. So Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp. Polycarp, uh, you're probably looking at his name and saying, that means many fish. And you would be wrong. You would be wrong. But uh, it's very understandable. Polycarp actually means fruitful means fruitful, which I think is actually a really cool name for a Christian. So this is Fruitful, the pastor of Smyrna, and Smyrna is right near Ephesus. So if Clement of Rome was a disciple of the Apostle Paul and probably knew Peter from, his, from their time in Rome, and if Ignatius perhaps was installed by Peter at the church of Antioch, Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, which again, is just I think it's so amazing to think about the fact that we can know about the guys who knew the apostles. And, you know, we tend to think of disciples and working through uh, trusting God by Jerry Bridges together. And there's nothing wrong with either of those things. I love Starbucks and I love trusting God. I put that in the wrong order. I love trusting God and I love Starbucks. But I think it's so amazing that these are the guys who went to Starbucks and worked through trusting God with the apostles. 
So these are the disciples of the apostles. I just think that's... And again, their affirmation of those same convictions that we see when we read the writings of the apostles and, and submit ourselves to the teachings of the apostles is just so incredibly encouraging. Uh, he wrote one work that has survived. It's called his epistle to the Philippians. Another thing that's interesting about Polycarp, and I'll tell more of his story in a moment, is that Polycarp's martyrdom, the record of that is the oldest record of Christian martyrdom that we have outside of the New Testament. Obviously, Acts chapter 7 is the first account of Christian martyrdom, but the martyrdom of Polycarp from the mid-2nd century is also a very old witness to the martyrdom of Christians. Here you have Smyrna. Smyrna is one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. In fact, it's one of the faithful churches. And what's interesting is that Polycarp, though he's not mentioned in the book of Revelation, may have already been the pastor of the church of Smyrna when the apostle John wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ recorded at the end of your New Testament. Okay, I want to read just a, a couple. I, I think I have four slides here from Polycarp. These are all from his letters. The first one I want to read is not only because you'll notice in the first line that it has the word steadfast. And I just felt like it was appropriate for me to find every quote where the word steadfast was used. And you'll notice that there's nothing about a cornerstone anywhere in this slide. But beyond that, I, I chose this. This is the very opening of his epistle to the Philippians because again, we have now the apostle of John affirming salvation by grace apart from works and yet also affirming that although we are saved apart from works, those who are saved evidence that through a transformed life. So he says this, He says, I rejoiced that the steadfast root of your faith, which was known from ancient times, abides until now and bears fruit unto our Lord Jesus Christ, who endured to face even death for our sins, whom God raised, having loosed the pangs of Hades, on whom, though you have not seen him, leave with joy unutterable and full of glory, unto which joy many desire to enter in for as much as you know that it is, and here it is, by grace that you are saved, not of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. So I love that. Now you'll notice there's some allusions there to First Peter chapter 1. There's allusion there, obviously, at the end to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8. In Polycarp's writings, he quotes from the New Testament over a hundred times, and from, I think it's like 14 or 15 different books of the New Testament. And that's because these guys who came after the apostles understood they were not apostles, and they understood that it was the teachings of the apostles that were actually authoritative. But what does it mean to be a Christian? So we're saved by grace through faith, yes, but what does it mean to be a Christian? So then let us serve Christ with fear, and all reverence, just as he himself has commanded, as did the apostles who preached the gospel to us and the prophets who announced in advance the coming of our Lord. So you see very clearly this concept of the Christian faith that we're saved by grace, and yet because we are saved, we now walk 
in obedience. And then from chapter 8, let us therefore hold steadfastly. There it is. See, see, I told you. And unceasingly to our hope and the guarantee of our righteousness, who is Christ Jesus. And now he just gives the facts of the gospel. Who bore our sins in his own body upon the tree. Who committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Instead, for our sakes, he endured all things in order that we might live in him. Let us therefore become imitators of his patient endurance. And if we should suffer for the sake of his name, let us glorify him. And then just one more from this, again, letter to the Philippians. Example of the Lord, firm and immovable in faith, loving the family of believers, cherishing one another, united in the truth, giving way to one another in the gentleness of the Lord and despising no one. So I read those things because I just want you to have a little taste of how these guys talked to fellow believers about what it meant to be a Christian. And I hope when you hear that, you go, oh yeah, I resonate with everything that is being said because those are the very same things that we would want to cherish that we would want to put forward and that we would want to hold fast to. All right, I want to talk a little bit about the death of Polycarp. So Polycarp was in the church of Smyrna for many decades, and he died around the year 155. Ignatius probably died around the year 117 or so, but we know from Ignatius's letters that even while he was on his way to Rome to be executed, that Polycarp was already pastoring in Smyrna. So by at least the year 115 or so, Polycarp was the pastor of the church, and he would have pastored there for at least 40 years. He was, we believe, 86 years old when he was martyred. So there was persecution that arose in the area of Smyrna. The specific reason for the persecution had to do with the fact that Christianity was shouldn't say it this way. The gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit is so powerful that people, I was going to say Christianity was successful, but that just doesn't capture it. God through his power, through the preaching of his word was penetrating the hearts of pagans and they were being converted. Well, we see the same thing happen in Acts 17 and also in Acts 19. When the gospel begins to impact pagan culture, people become Christians and what do they do? They do what Thessalonians did in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. They turn away from idols and they turn to worship the true and living God. Which means because they're no longer worshiping idols that the people who make money selling statues of idols get really annoyed because their little side hustle no longer makes any money. Also, within Greco-Roman paganism, there was the idea that the gods controlled all of the sort of nuances of the created world. So if you made a god angry, depending on what that god controlled, he could use the weather to come and retaliate against you. And so as a result, whenever anything bad happened, especially a natural disaster of any kind, the Christians were blamed because you're the ones that are convincing people to stop worshiping our gods and now something bad happened, we blame you for why the gods are angry at us. 
In fact, Tertullian, who's a guy we'll talk about later, he says in his apology, his defense, he says, if the river dries up, blame the Christians. And if the river floods, you blame the Christians. Either way, you blame the Christians. And he's the one who famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So Christians got blamed for anything bad that ever happened because they were the one people to no longer worship the Greco deities. Now, Polycarp is 86 years old. There's persecution that breaks out in Smyrna. And the governor sends soldiers to go and arrest this 86-year-old pastor. When the soldiers arrive, Polycarp welcomes them in, asks them if he can feed them dinner, and while they're eating dinner, asks if he can go and pray. I love that. Like, if persecution in America ever gets to the place where the police show up to arrest Christians, wouldn't it be cool if the Christians were like, I'm willing to come with you, but can I feed you first? And that's exactly what Polycarp does. So he invites them in, feeds them dinner, and he goes and prays and asks God to strengthen him for what's about to take place next. They take him then through a series of events to the proconsul, to the governor, and the governor urges him on account of his old age, deny Christ and I'll let you go. And Polycarp just has an amazing, amazing response. He famously says, for 80 and six years, I have served the Lord Jesus after him, and he's never done me any injury. Why then should I now reject or denounce my Savior and my King? It's just a beautiful moment in church history of an 86-year-old man's hope in Christ. And the governor is like, well, don't you know what I can do to you? Don't you know about the, the pangs of death? And don't you know about the fact that I can... Uh, burn Polycarp responds by saying, you threaten me with a temporal flame, but if you don't repent and turn to Christ, there are eternal flames that are waiting for you. I mean, it's just this amazing gospel moment. Uh, at that point, a herald goes out into the amphitheater where all of these people are gathered to watch Polycarp die, and the herald announces, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian, which, of course, was the great crime that Polycarp was guilty of. And then they bring Polycarp out and they burn him at the stake. But according to the legend, the fire didn't actually work. And so a soldier finally had to come and stab him in the heart. Amazing story. I would invite you to read sometime The Martyrdom of Polycarp. Again, you can find it online. It's easy to ask. One of the things that I hear at the end that Polycarp prays. And in that prayer, he commits himself to God the Father, to God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it is intensely Trinitarian. And one of the things I like to point out, going back to the Roman Catholic stuff I was saying earlier, is that there's no prayers to saints, there's no prayers to Mary, there's none of that stuff, because that stuff is not actual Christianity, and that stuff was not in the minds of Polycarp or his contemporaries at the end of the, or the middle of the second century. So that's fruitful. Fruitful, the pastor of Smyrna, uh, who pastored there in Smyrna for many years. All right, I just want to talk a little bit about the Didache and then the epistle to Diognetus. Uh, We don't know who wrote either of these documents. Uh, The Didache is 
supposedly a, a summary and collection of the teaching of the 12 apostles, but it wasn't written by an apostle, so it's not apostolic. It's not supposed to be in your New Testament or anything like that. What it seems to be is a sort of a... It's kind of like a new member's manual. This is Membership Sunday, so it's appropriate. It's sort of like a, a, a manual for baptismal candidates in the early church. And so it's a summary of what the apostles had taught in an effort to make sure that people who are about to become baptized members of a local church really understand what it means to be a Christian before they take that step. So that's what the Didache is. And I will read just a portion from the first two chapters. So the Didache begins by talking about two ways, the way of life and the way of death. And then it's built off of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. So the ethical instructions come largely from the Sermon on the Mount and from the Decalogue. And I want to show you something that I think is really interesting in chapter two, but just to give you a a little bit of context, there are two paths, one of life and one of death. And the difference is great between these two paths. Now, the path of life is this. First, you shall love the God who made you and your neighbor as yourself and all things that you would not want done to you. have the greatest commandment, the second great commandment, and the golden rule all here in this document that, again, was probably written in the very early years of the second century. And then chapter 2 here He's going to, the author is going to apply this to life. The second commandment of the teaching is this. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not corrupt youth. You shall not commit fornication. You shall not steal. You shall not use soothsaying. You shall not practice sorcery. Notice this. You shall not kill a child by abortion. Neither shall you slay it when it is born. You shall not covet the goods of your neighbor. So this is just the sort of practical outworking of the second half of the Ten Commandments. But I just think it's so interesting, right? Sometimes people think that evangelicals have only cared about the pro-life issue since the moral majority of the 1970s. I think it's so interesting that here we have all the way back in the beginning of the second century, the sort of ethics manual for the early church actually mentions both abortion and infanticide. So uh, there's a lot of other interesting things about the Didache. It talks about how to do baptism. It talks about how to know false prophets. It's, it's a fascinating uh, early text. And in fact, if you're interested in studying it further, Will Varner, Dr. Varner, who teaches up at the Master's University, wrote a small little commentary on the Didache, kind of a scholarly look. Understand it, way of the Didache. Decide to read it. I'd recommend also picking up Dr. Varner's book so that he can help you understand it. All right, and then of all of the apostolic fathers, the earliest leaders outside of the apostles, I mean, the truth is, all of these guys we've talked about this morning are my favorite. Uh, when, when I was dating my wife way back uh, 25 years ago now, I I grew up in a context where favorite was a very exclusive category. Like when you had a favorite, that meant you had only one. So you can only have one favorite movie. That's how I just thought about things. But when I met my wife, she helped me understand that favorite can be a category of things. So you can have lots of favorite movies. 
and lots of favorite books and those kinds of things. So this is my favorite of all of the early church fathers, but so were all the other guys we just talked about. That's what I'm trying to say. It's kind of like my kids. They're all my favorite. Some of them are in here today, so... Uh, the epistle to Diognetus, what I love about this. So this is a gospel from the mystery written to a guy, an unbelieving Roman pagan named Diognetus. There, there was a pretty high-level official in the Roman government named Diognetus, and some people have thought maybe this was addressed to him. But the truth is we don't really know. We don't know who the author was. He did, identifies himself simply as a disciple of Jesus. So this unknown disciple of Jesus wrote a gospel tract explaining why Christianity believes what it believes and why Christians do what they do to an unbelieving pagan Roman guy named Diognetus. And in this gospel tract, we have the most beautiful articulation of the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness I think of anything in church history that's ever written. And I realize that might sound a little bit hyperbolic, but it is so amazing. And what, again, is so amazing about this is you have a guy like Clement of Rome, the fourth pope, articulating justification by grace through faith alone. Polycarp of Smyrna, quoting Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 in his opening chapter of his letter to the Philippians, you're saved by grace through faith apart from works. And now a gospel tract that clearly states the reason it's not based on your work is because you need a righteousness not your own, the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account so that when God looks at you, he can justify you, he can declare you righteous because the righteousness of Christ covers you. And the Roman Catholic argument is that that doctrine didn't exist until the Reformation. And this document, the Epistle to Diognetus, wasn't discovered by archaeologists until the 19th century. But how cool it is when it was found to go, oh, here it is, not only in our New Testaments. I mean, we don't need the Epistle to Diognetus to believe this. We have the Bible. But isn't it cool by these early guys? You're like, okay, that's cool. Now let's actually read it. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. I guess I have some introductory bullet points here. Let's get past those. All right, here we go. The Epistle to Diognetus from chapter 9. And again, you can look this up. You can look this up. So, and when our iniquity fully accomplished, and it had been made perfectly manifest that punishment and death were expected as its recompense. In other words, we're sinners and we deserve to die. And the season came when God had ordained, or which God had ordained, when henceforth he should manifest his goodness and power. Oh, the exceeding great kindness and love of God. He hated us not, neither rejected us, nor bore us malice. But this long-suffering and patience, but he was long-suffering and patient, and in pity for us took upon himself our sins and himself parted with his own son as a ransom for us. And then notice the language of substitution here that's used. The holy for the lawless, the guileless for the evil, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but his righteousness could or would have covered our sins? 
In whom was it possible for us, lawless and ungodly men, to have been justified, save only in the Son of God? And then this underlined portion is just so cool. Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the insearchable creation. Oh, the unexpected benefit that the iniquity of many should be concealed in one righteous man and the righteousness of one should justify many that are iniquitous. I love that. I mean, that is the Apostle Paul. That's Jesus. That's the New Testament. That's the gospel. It's also Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and the Reformers. Uh, It's just so great. All right. Paragraph six here. Having then, in the former time, demonstrated the inability of our life. In other words, we were utterly unable. And having now revealed a Savior able to save even creatures which have no ability, in spite of our inability, Jesus Christ is omni-able. He willed that for both reasons we should believe in his goodness and to regard him as nurse, father, teacher, counselor, physician, mind, light, honor, glory, strength, and life. That's just the best. That is the gospel. That's what you and I believe. That is what we have placed our eternal hope upon. And again, we don't need church history because scripture is our authority and everything that we need for life and godliness is revealed on the pages of scripture. But isn't it encouraging and affirming to know after the apostles who read the scripture and then wrote stuff like this that is just such a beautiful description of the fact that our sin is accounted to Christ who paid it on the cross, the penalty for it, and his righteousness is accounted to us so that we're covered in his righteousness. And based on his righteousness, God the Father looks at us and declares us righteous. That's what it means to be justified. And that's what the early Christians believed. Again, because they were reading the same New Testament that you and I are reading, they were basing their beliefs on the same apostolic teaching that you and I base our hope on. Now, just to give you a little bit of an idea of a timeline here, uh, you can see how we have the deaths of Peter and Paul, the death of John, and right around those same times, like Clement was a contemporary of the Apostle John, Polycarp, a disciple of the Apostle John. So where our familiarity with the timeline usually ends is with our New Testaments, but it's just so encouraging to see that 2 Timothy 2 continue to be used or continue to develop throughout church history. Just a couple final thoughts here. Uh, Again, these are the apostolic fathers. We didn't look at all of them. One individual that we didn't look at this morning that I just want to mention is Papias of Hierapolis. Papias of Hierapolis was also a disciple of the Apostle John. And of course, the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. And the reason it's significant is Papias wrote a book called The Interpretations of the Sayings of the Lord, of which remnants have only survived in the writings of Irenaeus and Eusebius. But what we know about Papias is that Papias interpreted the book of Revelation in a distinctly premillennial way. In fact, all of the early church fathers that we have writings from were premillennialists. It's not until we get to a guy named Clement of Alexandria and then later to Augustine that amillennialism kind of flourishes. But 
I think it's so neat. And now again, eschatology is a second level doctrine, but I think it's so compelling. I got to come up with new adjectives. Um, I think it's so amazing that the disciples of the apostle John, the guy who wrote Revelation, they interpret Revelation in the same way that we do in a premillennial, Jesus is coming back and he'll establish his kingdom on the earth chronological way. Okay. All right. After surveying the apostolic fathers, we find that they did indeed prove to be the faithful men that Paul talked to Timothy about. And it is important to just say again, they're not authoritative and they're not inerrant. Their writings should not be put on par with scripture, nor should they be considered somehow an extension of your New Testament. But how encouraging it is to see the affirmation of our conviction in the teaching of those who learned from the apostles. And that gives us great confidence in thinking through how we understand both church history and and just our appreciation for the convictions that we hold. All right, well, I was hoping to land the plane early enough to take some questions, but I do that. I'm a good politician. I used up all my time just talking. But thank you for your attention this morning, and let me close us in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it is so encouraging to see the testimony of truth from the lips and letters of those who learned directly from us. And again, Lord, as we've reiterated this morning, we know that these church fathers are not our final authority, but it is encouraging and it is affirming to see them fix their gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he died and rose again and then on the basis of the hope of the gospel, knowing that they contributed nothing to their salvation, they were willing to live for Christ faithfully even unto death. And so they do join that cloud of witnesses that has come before us, the cloud of the martyrs. And they motivate us to run the race with endurance as we also fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. May we do that. We pray these things in his name. Amen.